We turn our uh, attention to the scripture. Our sermon text this morning is Luke's account of the triumphal entry. Uh, though the gospel accounts are very similar, we read Mark's account, the most, uh, the briefest of them already. Each of them is distinctive. And it's easy as we, uh, I noticed as I preached on uh, the triumphal entry before, I've normally kind of done a composite of all the gospel accounts, but uh, they're all different actually. As Jesus headed for Jerusalem, a crowd of disciples accompanied him. Just to give you what happened, that Jesus with his disciples comes out of Bethany and, uh, and other places, comes into Jerusalem. And as he begins to descend down the hill, the, the Jerusalem, which is full of people celebrating the Passover, a crowd begins to come out from Jerusalem. And at some point they meet in the road and it becomes a very raucous occasion. And uh, all but Jesus, but, but as uh, Luke talks about, he's talking about what happens before the crowd all gets mingled with the folks coming out of Jerusalem. So we have three parts of Luke's account. We have the acquisition of the colt, and then we have the attempt to silence his disciples, and then we have Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, still not in Jerusalem yet. In fact, Luke never actually records Jesus entering Jerusalem. The next thing after that is after he's weeping as he's at the temple. Let me read Luke 19, verses 28 to 44. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, up, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near Bethpage and Bethany, Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, and which no one has ever yet, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're doing this, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as Jesus had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners came to them. Why are you untying this colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as they rode along, they spread their cloaks on the, on the road. As he was drawing near already, on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Palm Sunday is the strangest of Christian holidays. It's a celebration filled with lots of irony. On the one hand, it seems to be a joyous occasion. 
we speak of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, we almost think it's Easter already. We read of people rejoicing, singing, shouting, and laying palm branches before him. Indeed, the church's worship on this day has often involved not just singing, but palm branches. But Luke records that Jesus' journey, which we think of as so triumphant, actually ended in tears. Not tears of joy, but deepest sadness. For though the crowds excitedly celebrated what they thought they understood, that Jesus was about to be recognized as the Messiah, in reality, Jesus' ride into Jerusalem was a death march. And Jesus knew that the crowd just did not get it. So this morning, I want, to, I want us to hear three things which this text has to teach us from the three sections of the text that I mentioned. The first is this. Dare to simply trust and obey. Dare to simply trust and obey. Sometimes about the time our children turn two, I guess, they're no longer content to simply trust what we say and obey what we tell them to do. There's another thing that enters. It's the word why. Repeated by the word why. 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 Maybe 20 times. Why. And the truth is, as adults, we haven't entirely outgrown that compulsion. We ask not just why, we ask why and how and when and where and for what purpose and what's in it for me. We've got lots of whys. Well, according to verse 30, Jesus sends his two disciples to fetch a colt for him, telling them only what to say if they were asked why they were doing it. That's it. So imagine that that was you that Jesus sent. Would you have a simple, yes, sir, and I'm on my way? No, you wouldn't. You would be full of questions. Why do we need a colt, Lord? And what about the, 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 what about, what about the, the name of the owners? Do we know who that is? Do, do we need to have some money to pay them? How much, Lord? Are they expecting us? Lord, didn't you... Call and tell them where we're coming. What if they say no, Lord? Oh, and if that's difficult to, uh, uh, to imagine, think if you're the person that owns the colt. And here comes two guys up tie on tie in your colt. Hey, what do you guys think you're doing? That's my colt. I, I don't care what your master says, it's still my coat, my colt. But in our text this morning, there's nothing of that kind of exchange. Jesus selected two disciples. He gave them a job and they went and did it. They dared to simply trust the Lord's wisdom, though Jesus gave them no explanation, and to obey what he said to do, though all the questions remain unanswered. Folks, this is what Christians do. We trust 
and we obey. A professor of mine back in seminary teaching a course on God's covenant of grace boils it down to this. He says, this is the, this is the essence of covenant faithfulness. You want to know what covenant faith, faithfulness looks like? Here it is. Trust and obey. That's it. That's what God requires of us. Trust and obey. But that did not mean that Jesus had no plan. Even if the disciples did not understand why Jesus needed this cult, his reason was nonetheless profound. As the other Gospels explain explicitly, Jesus getting the cult and riding on the cult was a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, where the prophet wrote, quote, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is the king who comes not to conquer and destroy, but comes humbly, comes in peace. That's why we dare to trust and obey him. Of course we would do that, right? The Lord called us to go to Timbuktu. We would say, yes, Lord, I'll go. Yeah, but what if he just calls you to mow the neighbor's grass who's so cantankerous? Hmm. What if his command is even closer to home? How about loving your wife if you're going to obey me? God's disciples trust and obey. Which brings us to our second point. Never withhold Jesus' praise. Never withhold Jesus' praise. Or to say it another way, don't make the rocks do your job. There are some sounds that I would really like to silence in this world. Sounds that... uh, and, and words that I, I wish I could just squelch all the time. If you're watching something on television, there's endless commercials. And I don't know how they turn the volume up louder during the commercials, but I know that must happen. And then there's the constant disruptive uh, visual and verbal pop-ups every time I'd go on my computer for anything. And there's the endless noise around us everywhere. I'd love to silence that. But even before I encounter all that raucous noise, I would want even more to silence some things that I do not believe in. Things which are foolish, which are worse, are dangerous. Ideas which I think will eventually destroy us. That I want to destroy. And that's what was going on as Jesus rode down the road toward Jerusalem. The crowd was not raucous. Not yet. That would happen later. The other gospel accounts tell us that as the crowd gathered people from Jerusalem and and, and joined with Jesus' disciples, people began to shout and to cry out. These words translate a whole different word than praising that Luke uses. That was noise similar to the crowd when they were crying a a week later, crucify him, crucify, angry shouting. Oh, that larger crowd from Jerusalem may have been shouting, Hosanna, save us. But we all know that you can loudly shout, save us, even when you mean it as mockery. Something like, oh, you think you're going to save us? Oh, yeah, save us. Please save us. We so need you. 
But before any of that raucous shouting started, Luke reports that Jesus' disciples were simply, I quote, rejoicing and praising him. That word praising never occurs in the other three accounts of the triumphal entry. But that's what they're doing, praising him. And you see, that is what the Pharisees among them hated so much. Not the raucous crowd, but that they were praising Jesus as if he was God's Messiah. Which he is. And they were singing Psalm 118, which was always sung during Passover. But the disciples were applying it to Jesus. You see, in Psalm 18, it's all about God's salvation. Verse 14 says, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Who has? Jesus. In verse 21, I thank you that you've answered me and have become my salvation. Who's become my salvation? Jesus has. And in verse 25 and 26, save us, we pray, O Lord, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke doesn't actually report that Jesus uses the word Hosanna. That was a Hebrew word that his Gentile listeners probably would not have understood. But Hosanna was just the right word for it means save us, please. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. That's the point of Psalm 118, which these disciples were singing. And that's what the Pharisees found so unacceptable. So in verse 39, they said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus refused. Jesus knew he was worthy of their praise and that the authorities, the Pharisees had no authority to shut him down. And so Jesus refused to silence his disciples, saying simply, if they did the very stones would cry out. And so to this day, you cannot stifle the praise of God's people. We worship the king who outranks every human power. So we refuse to make the stones, the rest of creation, carry the responsibility of what we know we're to do. Oh, some public official may make it a violation to praise, to sing together. We understand their concern, but we cannot be silenced. We will sing in our home then. We will sing in the shower. We will gather our family together and we will sing with our kids. We will, we will sing as we drive down the road. We'll, we'll, we'll turn the volume up and sing louder than you can imagine. We will praise the Lord at the top of our voice and, and we will stand out in the rain and, and sing if we have to, but we will not silence our praise. King Jesus' command to praise him trumps every other consideration. As the hymn writer Robert Robinson wrote even before our country was founded, he wrote, brightness of the Father's glory. Shall thy praise unuttered lie? Fly my tongue. Such guilty silence. Sing the Lord who came to die from the highest throne in heaven to the deepest cross of woe. All to ransom guilty 
Sinners, flow my praise forever. Flow. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We will never withhold our Savior's praise. Oh, and does your music list that you listen to, your playlist, does it reflect that? Or is the Savior's praise never heard there? Well, before we go on, this crowd of disciples arrived, before they arrived in, this, in Jerusalem, something else happened, which the gospel tells us. Let me read again verse 41. When Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, <clears throat> for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Which brings us to our third point. Apart from Jesus, we have no hope. Apart from Jesus, we have no hope. For most of my adult life, Americans have been pretty hopeful about the future. Well, there have always been some hot issues, but few lived in fear about those. That was always a contained thing. That's changed now a lot. A huge segment of our country is deeply afraid. They're fearing new strands of the COVID, fearing deep divide on every issue, growing hostility between uh, hostile sides, with uh, fearing that our political system is unreliable, uh, elections aren't fair, and uh, foreign elements are interfering. Well, at the same time, some others are giddy about uh, what's going on as they perceive a growing radical agenda that will transform our country to make it what they want it to be. You see, we're not really so far removed from the troubles in Jerusalem. The zealots in Jerusalem wanted military action against the Romans. They were hoping that Jesus would come and be the general that would lead them to kill off the Romans. Well, the Sadducees, they wanted to taunt with the Romans. In fact, they felt that they had already made some significant progress, that it was going to be soon the Messianic era in, in conjunction with the Romans. Meanwhile, Jesus upsets all those agendas. As Alan Culpepper puts it, Jesus was a king, but no ordinary king. He was the king of fishermen, tax collectors, Samaritan harlots, blind men, demoniacs, and cripples. Those who followed Jesus were a ragtag bunch, pathetically unfit for the grand hopes that danced in people's imaginations. No, Jesus was a king, all right, but he was not what Jerusalem wanted. He was too meek for the militants. He was too outspoken and spoken and otherworldly for the diplomats. And so he easily became the enemy of both and would be rejected and crucified rather than praised. But as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he knows something that none of those factions know. Jesus knows that God's judgment is coming. So as Jesus approached Jerusalem, 
He wept. Lamenting what was happening with God's covenant people. Oh, this was not a new concern on the part of Jesus. Back in, 13, in chapter 13, he'd expressed his sorrow saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather you, as a, your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under wings. But you were not willing and now even as the crowds acclaim him, he knows that by the end of the week, the mobs of Jerusalem will be crying, crucify him, crucify him. And because of their rejection, judgment would come. For in rejecting Jesus, they reject peace with God. The reconciliation of sinners to the holy God is what Jesus came to do. That's the hope that he gives to the world. So apart from that... Apart from Jesus, there's no hope. No hope. Jesus understood that. He didn't delight that God was going to get even with them. He was brokenhearted and he wept for them. And we know what happened in 66 to 70 AD. The Romans made war against the Jewish people. They laid siege to Jerusalem and its inhabitants for 143 consecutive days. Since it was Passover time, they let the worshipers into the city, but then they locked the gates and didn't allow them to leave. And so they starved the city while laboring to breach her walls. And finally in 70 AD, the city was taken. The walls dismantled, everything was burned to the ground. Thousands were killed. Even more were enslaved. As history played itself out, the plans which the leaders of Jerusalem chose to trust, those plans became their undoing. And the city named for peace, Jerusalem, has never known peace. For apart from Jesus, there is no hope of peace. Dear people, we are not so different from the people in Jerusalem. We have our own favorite agendas in which we put our faith, in which we build our hopes for the future. And we too may find Jesus a bit too radical for our liking. In fact, even while filled with religious, religious celebrations this Holy Week, our heart commitments may be far from repentance and faith. But this morning I tell you, Jerusalem's rejection of Jesus' offer of himself is a warning for us who have been visited with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there was no hope for Jerusalem when they rejected Jesus, neither is there any hope for us apart from him. Luke's account of this day has a whole different message than the other, other Gospels. It does not contradict them. It just teaches some different things. First, Luke makes a point that if you believe that Jesus is God's king, then it's pretty simple. You trust him and you do what he says. Trust and obey. Second, Luke addresses an early attempt to subdue or the Lord's worship. And the Lord gives a very crystal clear answer. Never. Withhold Jesus' praise. And finally, Luke alone records Jesus' lament over Jerusalem. 
We might have thought Jesus would be caught up in the excitement, but instead he's weeping over those who reject him. And apart from Jesus, we have no hope. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us to hear what you had recorded for us. We sometimes think that uh, we have this nice little festival once a year of Jesus being recognized as a king and then saving us, rising from the dead. Oh, Father, may it not be just walking through the events again this week, but grasp our hearts, I pray, and hold us and bring us to yourself and make, give us a willingness to trust and obey and a, and a passion for your praise and, 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 and a, a desperateness of trusting you, knowing that we have nothing else. We ask in your name. Amen.